What a privilege it is for me to um, come behind this pulpit. It's, of course, a, a tremendous opportunity to be a teacher in this, in this church, and I enjoy teaching in the Sunday school hour. But there's something special about preaching uh, to the congregation from behind the pulpit. And I'm reminded of a practice that I always noticed in my dad before he would ascend into the pulpit. For those of you that don't know, my dad is a pastor for many years. And uh, he would often pause just before he went up into the pulpit just to pray. And uh, that always struck me as an important part of what he had to do. Um, I asked him once what he prayed when he, when, he, when he stopped like that. And he said he prayed that he would disappear and that the Word of God would come forth um, not hindered by him as a person. Let's bow our heads and pray that right now. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the wonderful power of God, of the power of your Word, which is ours to share. And as we gather around your, your word this morning, Lord, we pray that that would, be, um, that would be the dominant, impactful uh, message that we receive, not the words of men, but the word of God. Bless our time together this morning, Lord, for we pray it in your name. Amen. Imagine for a moment that instead of the the usual sermon this morning, <clears throat> I would be handing out uh, pen and paper and your assignment would be to write an essay on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. That Christian teaching that God is the supreme authority and all things are under His control. It would be a, an open book assignment. You could reference your Bibles as much as you like. You could use your smartphones to access any study resources that you use for Bible study. <clears throat> and this task would not be limited to those of you that are adults, um, kids and adults alike, uh, men and women, everyone would, um, would be responsible to write, would, would be required to write this essay. I would expect that after the inevitable confusion and loudly whispered questions from younger kids, Mommy, what does sovereignty mean? That after a few minutes of reflection, most would take up their pens and all that would be heard would be the scratch of pens on paper as you worked at calling to mind all that you know on this magnificent doctrine. Maybe there would be a few questions that you would include in your text where you said, you know, there's, I've heard it said thus, but I have no idea what that actually means. That being said, in this church, I would expect to get a large number of excellent essays worthy of any seminary level class. I would imagine that the writing would continue for an extended period of time. For much can be said and your essays would be dotted with weighty references from God's Word as you clicked your way through online Bible commentaries and dictionaries and substantiated 
that which is just knowledge in your head with the great words of, of theologians and commentators. I wonder if as I have been speaking, you have been asking yourself, where would I begin on such an essay? What would be my main points? What would be the outline? I suppose if it was me, that I would begin with a discussion on how God's sovereignty is rooted in the very act of creation. I would seek to build a picture that captures the length and breadth and depth and power of the Trinity as the Father dictated His desire for, for creation, the, the Son spoke the material world into existence, and the Holy Spirit implemented order all by the spoken word of God as we see recorded in Genesis 1 and 2 or Colossians 1.16. As the hasty scratching of pens on paper begins to subside, imagine that I added a second part to your assignment. Now using what you have written, the theory behind the doctrine, now add how that doctrine of the sovereignty of God affects your daily life. How does the doctrine of the sovereignty of God affect your daily life? Be careful not to generalize. I want you to focus, your focus to be on how it affects you personally, in your families, in your profession, in your church. Suddenly the task gets a little harder, doesn't it? And if you're like me, you find yourself scratching your head because you quickly realize that an ugly canyon has opened up between theory and practice. We may be able to articulate the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. But when it comes to putting it into practice in our daily life, this becomes a much more challenging task. Reformed theologian A.W. Pink calls the doctrine of the sovereignty of God the doctrine which is the key to history, the interpreter of providence, the warp and woof of scripture, and the foundation of Christian theology. And all of us would parrot, amen to that. And yet, look at the way we manage our lives, our families, our church, our business, and a different picture emerges. This morning, I want to peel back the covers a little and examine whether this doctrine governs our lives or is a lofty theme to, to which we simply pay lip service. You can relax, there'll be no written assignment. Your task when you leave this service, though, will be much more challenging. Put these truths into practice. Put these truths into practice. Earlier in the service, I read you our key text for this message, Proverbs 16 and verse 9. Enrico, if he were here with his English Standard Version, will read, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Mark 
faithful to his New American Standard Bible, will read, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Rick, in his King James, will read, A man's heart deviseth his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And Joe Cudney's Bible, the New Living Translation, will read, We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. It's listed for you in the bulletin, and it's up there on the screen. And take this verse home with you, and chew on it, like a cow ruminates on its cud. Ponder these words and allow them to transform the way that you look at life. Because contained within these words is an important principle pertaining to the sovereignty of God. You'll see that it includes an element of, that is our responsibility and an element which is God's responsibility. In recent days it seems to me that whichever way I turn, God is confronting me with this simple message. And it's a message I want to share with you. It's a message that if you and I can grasp its, grasp its full extent, it will transform our lives and our effectiveness in the kingdom of God. And who of us does not want to be more effective in the kingdom of God? Who of us did not pause for a moment when I asked earlier and said, who are your disciples? And think, boy, I wish I had a few more that I could count as my disciples. The message is a simple one. We can make our plans, but outcome is in the hands of the Lord. Outcome is in the hands of the Lord. This is a very liberating truth. Let me say it again. Outcome is in the hands of the Lord. One scholar has written, how different is the God of the Bible from the God of modern Christendom? The conception of deity which prevails most widely today, even amongst those who profess to give heed to the Scriptures, is a miserable caricature, a blasphemous travesty of the truth. The God of this century is a helpless, effeminate being who commands the respect of no really thoughtful man. The God of this of the popular mind is the creation of maudlin sentimentality. Is the idea of a sovereign God not sadly lacking from this picture? Would it surprise you to hear that these words were written back in 1918? They could have been written last week. Was it not the sage who said in Ecclesiastes 1.9, There is nothing new under the sun. It seems as though we frequently want to remove the fangs from God. Indeed, we can look into the very pages of Scripture and see that man from Adam on never quite grasped the concept of the sovereignty of God and the role that God desires to play in our everyday walk. As we look at Scripture, we see that some were given a short and intense lesson on the subject. Let's, let's glimpse into the life of one man, a man of valor <clears throat> and object of our admiration. A man selected by God to be a leader, and yet even 
he initially fails to recognize that outcome is in the hands of the Lord. God, God's lesson to him is brief and to the point, and he grasps it quickly, and he implements it completely. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. We're going to read on to chapter 6 and verse 2, and the passage is up on the screen. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him, and his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, rather... I indeed come now as a captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel, and no one went out and no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands with its king and valiant warriors. The time of wandering in the desert was over. And the mantle had been passed from the mighty man of God, Moses, to a worthy successor, Joshua, one of only two spies who were not distracted by the might of the inhabitants of the land of, that God had promised his people. Because in that particular instance, Joshua and Caleb had recognized the sovereignty of God. They had understood that despite appearances, outcome was in the hands of the Lord. And the Lord had brought them out of Egypt and promised that they would enter the land. The children of Israel had eaten the first fruit of the land and God's provision of manna had come to an end. All the males born during the 40 years of wandering had been circumcised at Gilgal and the reproach of Egypt had been rolled away. And now the, the armies of the Lord stood opposite Jericho, a mighty fortress city. And Joshua recognized that he was going to have to conquer this city in order to begin the campaign which God set before him. He didn't even entrust a reconnaissance of that city to anyone else, but he himself went out from the camp determined to forge a plan that would allow them to break through the walls. For a moment he almost forgot that outcome was in the hands of the Lord. Better that he should have been with the priest in prayer and asking for God, from God what to do. So no doubt he had begun to formulate a plan. Nothing wrong with making a plan. But the text tells us that now Jericho was shut up inside and outside. 
because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Joshua was contemplating how he could take this fortified city. He was making his plans. The full weight of the responsibility of leadership rested on his shoulders. How was he going to ensure victory for the children of God? And all of a sudden he becomes aware of a stranger standing nearby with a drawn sword. But with characteristic boldness, he does not shrink from the armed stranger, who may well have been a spy from the city of Jericho. We don't hear that, uh, that Joshua had any guards with him. But he went to him, and his question is a question with overtones of outcome. In essence, he is asking, can I depend on you to help me ensure victory? Or are you here to plot my demise. The reply of the stranger is at once puzzling and quite unexpected. No, or neither. The stranger, who we quickly discern to be none other than the pre-incarnate Christ, has a more lofty affiliation. He is not about to align himself under the command of Joshua, nor is he going to take up a position in opposition to the children of Israel. He was working out his sovereign plan, and he was ensuring a particular outcome that was congruent with his will on earth. He had a message to deliver to Joshua, and his message was clear and packed with certainty and with inevitability. Those are two very powerful uh, aspects of what our life should be characterized by. Because these are typical aspects of God's sovereignty, certainty and inevitability. He starts by announcing who he is. I am the commander of the Lord's army. Chapter 5 verse 14. The hosts of heaven. This was commander-in-chief of heaven's armies, spirit beings of whom we have most, a most fragmented and incomplete picture, but which we recognize as being magnificently powerful. Later we could read how they leveled Jericho. One of them executed all firstborn in Egypt. Elisha and his servants saw the hills covered with horses and chariots of fire in 2 Kings, Kings 6. They were part of the hosts of heaven. And to his credit, Joshua realigns his position straight away. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. How different, incidentally, from Jacob, who also encountered the pre-incarnate Christ, and engaged him in a night-long wrestling match. I find myself wondering, who of these two are you more like this morning? Are you wrestling with God or holding Him at a distance? Or are you on your knees before Him, willingly surrendering to His role as the one who determines outcome? 
So ultimately, whether you are Joshua or whether you're Joshua or whether you're Jacob, God remains the winner. He then instructs Joshua to remove his sandals. The same command that he gave Moses at Horeb when he tasked Moses with leading the people out of bondage. And Joshua's obedience solidifies his willingness to follow the Lord's instructions. The obedience was to be tested even further for the instructions delivered made no human sense. But before he provides the battle plan, the commander of the army of, Lord, of the Lord announces what the outcome will be. He says, See, I have given Jericho into your hands with its king and valiant warriors. One commentary puts it like this, The language intimates that a purpose already formed was about to be carried into immediate execution. A purpose already formed was about to be carried into immediate execution. That little word see in chapter 6 verse 2 is an interesting one. There's no, this is no translator's transition included to, to help the flow of the narrative. It occurs in the original text. It is a word that is used in a multitude of contexts. What is its purpose in this text? I would submit that, is, that it is here to stand in stark contrast to the start of the previous verse. Now Jericho was closely shut up because of the children of Israel. And as Joshua contemplated this formidable fortress protected by mighty men of valor, it was quite clear to him that Jericho was a formidable foe, tightly shut up. In no way was it obvious to plain sight that this city was to be given in his hands. But God says, see. Not look, see. It's already accomplished. To accept this outcome required a gigantic step of faith on Joshua's part. Such a step of faith was not logical. It was not sensible. It was in no way intuitive. It was only possible if Joshua understood that outcome is in the hands of the Lord. The word translated see can also be translated discern or foresee. Joshua's ability to foresee would be further put to the test when the strange visitor announced the battle plan. Joshua 6.5 It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. I just can't imagine how I would have handled that. I would have said, Lord, you've got to give me more here. A shout's not going to bring those walls down. But Joshua understood that outcome is in the hands of the Lord. 
And he returns to the camp with a battle plan. A plan that would lay the pattern for the campaign to conquest the Canaanites according to the will of God. As long as they remained obedient to God, they would win. The moment they took it into their own hands, defeat was close at hand. The Lord impressed this lesson on my life through a sermon preached by Pastor Mark several years ago. as He preached through the book of Romans. It was a fine series that had challenged and inspired the congregation. Many of you may remember it. And finally we came to the end of the book and Mark announced that his text for the day was Romans chapter 15 verse 28. Paul writing to the Romans ends his epistle by providing his travel plans. Therefore, when I finished this, that was delivering the offering to the churches in Jerusalem, and have put my seal on the fruit of theirs, I will go on, I will go on to you by way, uh, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And that was his text for the day. And the thought that swept through my mind was, Good heavens, Mark, could you not have skipped over this one? What can you po possibly extract from this rather pedestrian passage? But while many of the messages from Romans have since faded from my memory, that message remains and has been underlined time and time again in my life. His message was profound. Not because he is profound, but because God's word is profound. Paul had plans. He was on his way to Jerusalem. And then he wanted to stop by Rome on his way to Spain. However, outcome was in the hands of the Lord. Paul did deliver the gift to Jerusalem. And then he went on to Rome, albeit under circumstances that he never foresaw. And to our knowledge, he never made it to Spain. That was not part of God's sovereign plan. It's not that God objects to us structuring what we do within his will in the form of plans. What he requires, though, is that we display a willingness, dare I say eagerness, to surrender ourselves to his sovereign plan. Furthermore, he delights in seeing us energetically and with zeal executing the plan for his glory. Paul shows this passion for the execution of God's plan. Philippians 3, chapter 13. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Is this not in stark contrast with how we live our lives. To live a life surrendered to God is not a natural inclination. 
Our natural inclination is to have things go our way. We make plans. We pursue our plans. We do all we can to remain in control. And we are vexed when things don't go how we planned. I experience this all the time and so do you. You figure out a way that something is going to, to turn out. And it doesn't turn out that way. And we get all uptight about it and get ourselves in a knot. Instead of stopping and saying, Lord, outcome is in your hands. What is it that you want uh, that has changed where my plan was going to be? Do we not invest our energy in worrying and being anxious over outcome? Being worrying and being anxious over outcome. The world teaches us that we have to have a vision statement and goals. We purchase Stephen Covey day planners and devote the first few minutes of our day identifying our goals and priorities for the day. But Paul's experience and Joshua's example remind us that outcome is in the hands of the Lord. And as we look at the lives of men and women in God's word, we quickly see that God's outcome bore little resemblance to the plans of men in many cases. Consider Joseph. Think about the harlot Rahab. The shepherd boy who became a king, David. Daniel. Queen Esther. Amos. Do you think he grew up dreaming of marrying a prostitute? We can make our plans, but... Isaiah, Isaiah reminds us, surely as, I, surely as I, that is Jehovah, have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. But we allow the uncertainty of, of outcome to overwhelm us. We look at the plans of governments and we fume and we fret. We consider the economy and toss and turn in our beds. We contemplate the future. What will we do when school is finished? When we have, a, have to select a wife, raise children, choose a career, plot out our retirement, and our emotions swing between excitement and anticipation on one hand and fear and trepidation on the other. And the psalmist asks, why are the nations in an uproar? And the people devise a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then you wonder why I used that perhaps slightly shocking term earlier that we like to take the fangs away from God. So where does that leave us? I want to end by drawing out four implications from, the way of, from this way of thinking. But don't let your thinking on this stop here. Take time to answer that second question I hypothetically set for you. How does the doctrine of sovereignty affect your daily life? How does the knowledge 
that outcome is in the hands of the Lord impact on the way that you live out your life day to day. As I contemplated what the Lord was saying to me as I studied this subject, there were four nuggets that I distilled from the truth that the Holy Spirit placed on my heart. The first is to be prepared for an unconventional battle plan. Be prepared for an unconventional battle plan. Who in their wildest dreams would have dreamed up the battle plan for Jericho? Or Joseph's path to power? Or Noah's rescue plan? Or the means God would use to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? Or even the very essence of the gospel? Christ's substitutionary death. His burial, His victorious resurrection, and His precedent-setting ascension. And then we remind ourselves, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, neither are your ways my ways, declares God. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the God who determines outcome. The details of the path to a specific outcome are just as significant as arriving there. It's for this reason that the Apostle Paul teaches us to rejoice in all things. So then when those strain, those unexpected things come our way that don't comply with our plan... We remind ourselves that the outcome, whatever the, the circumstance is, is in the hands of the Lord. Well, this is a thing for rejoicing. Because imagine if that outcome was in our hands. Imagine if it was in Joshua's hands. In other words, extract maximum benefit from the process. The detailed steps that are devised by God to ensure his outcome. The next thing that I note is that the final outcome will probably bear little resemblance to your plans. Our idealized outcome seldom takes cognizance of the value of the process and are usually focused on our comfort or our benefit. A good retirement a cushy job, a gorgeous wife, a big church. But God's plan has as its ultimate purpose to bring glory to himself. And indeed, he alone is worthy of such glory. And these two competing outcomes are usually poles apart and usually the reason why our plans seldom bear any resemblance to what God the outcome that God determines. The next point that I note is that do not expend energy in being anxious about outcome. Do not expend energy being anxious about outcome. Jesus put it like this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. 
These are all details that comprise steps which are God's to establish. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look to the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And he, he guides their steps. That's what he does. Are you not worth more than they? We may plan, plan to that end. And who, is, who of you, by being worried or by planning, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Will he not much more guide your steps? You of little faith, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and for your heavenly Father knows what you, that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom. Place yourself under his sovereign command and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How many of us can claim to have reached this degree of dependence on God? What would our lives look like if we had done so? And then the final one is to take time to align your actions with the plan of God as it is revealed to you. If we understand this lesson, we won't accept, we won't adopt a laissez-faire, anything goes, we'll see how tomorrow turns out attitude. Our lives will not be without plans. God delights in us making our plans. Rather, our plans will be, in a const will be in a constantly updated form as we mold them to conform to the plan of God and to His path. And that's the important part. It's not difficult to make plans. But can you take those plans and weave them and mold them into what God has set before you as He lays His steps uh, as he lays his steps for your life before you. Our attention then becomes devoted to doing what God has called us to do, that which God has gifted us to execute, and we will increasingly realize that outcome is in the hands of the Lord. And our plans will begin to look like God's plans because we will have recognized that He is a sovereign God and that He directs our steps and that He works out the details and that in doing so, the end result is the result which is inevitable and which, is, which will take place. And perhaps as we draw to the end of the message, you're thinking, God does not have nearly so much influence in my life. 
that I could say he directs my steps. Well, think about it. The God who designed and created the universe and wants to be intimately involved in your daily life, dealing with the problems of guilt and sin and guiding you along a path that leads to eternal life in his presence, this is the God that we, that we can serve. Why would you not take up such a magnificent offer and on this very day repent of your sin and place your faith in Him and acknowledge that outcome is in the hands of the Lord? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a comfort it is to know that You who called all of creation into existence and who has sustained it since creation, as seasons have come and gone, people have risen up and fallen down, great nations have emerged and then disappeared, and yet you still remain sovereign king of kings. We understand how you scoff at mankind with his puny strategies and vain thoughts. Your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And yet we long to know your mind, O Lord. We desire to come before you in absolute obedience. Help our unbelief. Protect us from our inclination to seize control and attempt to do it my way. Imprint in our hearts and in our minds that outcome is in the hands of the Lord. For, you, for we ask this in the name of Jesus the commander of the hosts of heaven. Amen.